The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 8th chapter. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying, You will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, in case you didn't know, tomorrow marks 505 years ago that an unhappy monk, spoiling for a fight, posted 95 statements on the door of the castle church uh, in Wittenberg, Germany. His brilliant takedown of the indulgence system as practiced was theological gold. As he built on the work of previous reformers uh, and as the uncertainty and corruption uh, that had plagued the church came to you know, bother more and more people, Luther's teachings became a welcome change. And eventually the Reformation would take off. Rome, of course, would view it as something of a Pandora's box, uh, but the Protestants would view it as something like an escape from Egypt. If you listen to our podcast series on the Reformers, you can get a pretty in-depth look at the effects and the avenues of the Reformation, how it would lift up the scriptures as the ultimate authority, how it would really ultimately give rise to nation-states, Uh, how it would really create something like, and this language is clumsy, but something like the separation of church and state, something that was needed at the time given the monopoly that the church held on the salvation of of people, including kings. But really how it would bring the, the whole counsel of God to light, especially the good news that Jesus Christ has made you free. And that had been obscured by centuries of, frankly, false teaching or simply hidden doctrines, you know? Well, we know about it, but we don't let, we don't need the peasants to know about it. Indeed, it is quite easy to romanticize this time in history and the process of the Reformation, even if it is the truth that many of the reformers felt like abject failures. And they really did not see as many successes as we might think. Many of their hard-won gains, like, for example, nation-states and princes that would allow them to even be Lutheran, that came at the expense of war and devastation. It wasn't like a switch was flipped and, oh, everyone has just heard the gospel now and receives it with joy. No. There was just as many pig-headed unbelievers as before. There was still a whole lot of superstition. Uh, And there was still the belief by many in institutions over and above the word of God, where, where and when the word of God and the institution conflicted. 
How fortunate we are, of course, to live after all of that, enjoying many of the freedoms won by the reformers. But, of course, freedom has its costs, too. Unless our political and personal freedoms are bound by our commitment to God's law, or at least an effort to apply God's law to our own time and place, those freedoms can become unbearable. The Bible speaks to the disastrous consequences for Israel when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the theme of Judges in particular. Well, a free people who believe that they can determine what is right and wrong for themselves are not only deceived, but dangerous. So we need to always really think about the Reformation and not just enter, you know, the 1517 Museum. But think about, you know, our own time, and of course the future. While our sovereign and gracious God will always build his kingdom, what role will we play? After all, while we may want to constantly use the example of 1517 as a guiding light, the truth is that we live in very different times. We proclaim, for example, absolute truth in an age of relative truth. We proclaim the lordship of Christ to an autonomous culture. Autonomous simply meaning self-rule. Lordship and self-rule are mutually exclusive. You can have one or the other, but you can't have both. We proclaim the need for repentance and forgiveness to a people who really don't even think sin is much as a, much of a problem. We proclaim that God can be known in his revelation to the world, through the Holy Scriptures, of course, to a world that, that views the Bible with extreme skepticism. But they believe everything about UFOs <laughs> or other weird things, right? We proclaim a message of selflessness to a world that can pretty much buy whatever it wants, maybe with next-day free shipping. I'm not opposed to buying things with next-day free shipping. I do it all the time. But that's kind of what we're competing against. So while Martin Luther's courage may be an inspiration, reform in today's church and in today's world is going to look really different. Over the past few weeks, I listened to a a podcast series about the rise and fall of an American megachurch. I attended a pastor's retreat, and I I met up with a church planter, a young man hoping to to build a a church plant. Uh, I'm going to write a full review of that podcast in the newsletter this month. You'll get that in a few days. But this podcast outlined all of the ego and celebrity worship that killed the fastest-growing church in America. The pastor's retreat with other NALC pastors was lovely, uh, but shy of one other guy, I was the youngest person there by like 20 years. The church planter, I told him, man, I think you have an uphill battle. You know, after all, I'm very familiar with another church plant in my own neighborhood that plateaued several years ago, and a good friend of ours, they're part of a church plant in our neighborhood, and it looks like it's not going to make it at all. I'm not sure why we continue to plant new churches 
uh, when we have so many other churches that are struggling. Uh, but I think the idea is well, something new has a better chance to take off uh, rather than to try to keep something older going. Because obviously I'd like to recruit all those people to our church. Well, maybe it was just a bad couple of weeks, but I am increasingly led to the conclusion that we're reaching a phase broadly in the church and I think in the culture, something you might call burnout. You know, we are already stretched in so many directions in our lives. We're we're so distracted. Faith is often put on the back burner. Right at a time when the world is saying, oh, you don't need that. You'll be fine without that. The church is blessed in that it has such wide exposure, but that also creates the problem of like, well, everyone already thinks they know about it, right? Every, everyone already thinks they know what they need to know. I'm, I meet so many people who think it, it, it's like that whole thing. What's the, there's a paradox where the more of an expert you become in a field, you realize how little you know, so you have the imposter syndrome. But if you know just a little bit, you think you're like an expert, but actually you don't know anything at all. Um, so there's this kind of inverse relationship to knowledge, and so many people have a little bit of knowledge about the church, maybe some news stories they heard, maybe they went to Sunday school when they were a kid. It's just enough to be dangerous. They don't think we have anything to say. So what will the future of the church look like? Will there even be a church in our context? I mean, in reality, there really isn't much of a church in Europe. I mean, if we're honest. In 2000, a Gallup poll found that 70% of Americans were members of either a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Now, in America, most of that is the church, but 70% in 2000. That's a very healthy majority. Today, that number is 47%. It's about a percent per year. So something is changing, and quickly. Here's what I think is possible to see in our lifetime. I think there's going to be a a lot of mergers of of dying liberal churches. Uh, I think we're already starting to see that happen, in fact. And usually a merger is a sign of death. Maybe not in the business world, but in the church world, (laughs) it's two dying things coming together to try to survive. It doesn't portend well. I think the megachurch model, you know, hard as it might be to believe, I think it's going to become a thing of the past. I don't think it's a sustainable model. You have too many scandals that the megachurch model seems to seems to bring about. And you have this problem of it being rooted around a person who has to, you know, share it. You know, who, who's, who's going to take up the mantle? Passing on leadership is, is very difficult to do in that model. Shy of a pretty serious change in our culture, which I'm always hopeful for, but I think seminaries, parachurch organizations, nonprofits, Christian colleges, and possibly congregations, though they'll be the last, will lose their tax-exempt status. I think that's quite possible. Uh, and yet, all of that, despite all of that, I think the church will be better than ever. It'll be smaller, but it'll be a very committed crew of Jesus followers. Uh, the church, I think, eventually will have to find its footing. It will become more committed, no longer distracted by superficial growth or the comforts of the culture. The church will be forced, forced, Our hand will be forced to make the main thing the main thing, and that will prove to be a good thing. What are some reforms that might help all this? What are some good changes that we could 
employ, you know, if you or I were bishop for a day, right? We are not pope. We don't believe in popes. But you get the idea, right? If we could just say, hey, let's just do this. I'll throw out a few. No more multimedia. No more multimedia. Now, I know some of our members watch our live stream at the 11 o'clock service. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to take that away. But churches, or church, if you will, should be an in-person experience using old books. In fact, any hymnal that's not 30 years old or more, we should just throw, go ahead and just throw that away. If it doesn't smell like old paper, just, no, get, we, we're going to get rid of that. Um, but, but in all seriousness, I do think the multimedia approach is tactile, I think, in terms of experience. It's not a good one, because we're trying to proclaim a message that we want to pass down from generation to generation. Books communicate that. Other media don't, or doesn't. No more tailoring services to unbelievers. Oh, by all means, do all the evangelism you can, you can possibly spare. Do special classes, do outreach events. But worship should be as rich as possible for those who believe. Seeker-sensitive worship, which we've done for the last 30 years in the evangelical world, all it's really done is water down worship for believers, not feeding them, and it really hasn't attracted unbelievers. You know how I know that? Because in 2000, 70%, blah, 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 in 2022, 47%. So it's failing. It's a failure. Which is fine. Maybe that would happen anyway. I'm just... I'm just looking at the numbers, that's all. How about putting a cap on the size of churches? No more than 250 members. You get any more than that, you got to go plant a new congregation. You can spare a few. Uh, how about no more online seminaries? Want to be a pastor? Good, go to seminary. How are you going to learn how to work with people? And I'm, I'm on the candidacy committee of our denomination that does a lot of online work. Um, I kind of joke that with the Bonhoeffer House ministry we had a few years ago, I, we came up with this intentional community seminary formation program right when everything went online. You know, uh, it, w- it would be like coming up with the best possible horse buggy in about 1912, you know? Um, but maybe no more online seminaries. And then finally, this is the big one. All fu- future pastors will learn a trade. Electrical, plumbing, carpentry, mechanical, while they're in seminary, if not before. So I just attached a trade school right to the side of the seminary. You'd be going to Old Testament, you know, Hebrew class one morning and then AC repair in the afternoon. Sound crazy? Defeatist? Maybe. But one man's pessimism, pessimism is another man's preparation and prudence. If we're going to get real about reform, and actually believe the motto, simple reformanda, always reforming, well, then we, you know, instead of just talking about the 1517 Museum, then let's get real. I mean, megachurches, they may have thousands of members, and that might lead people to believe, you know, that the church has this very bright future. But really, if you look at the metadata, I I did some back-of-the-napkin math with population in 2000 versus today. It's about a million people a year, if that Gallup number is correct. About a million people per year leave churches. Here's the unassailable reality. Here's the good news. God's church will never die. And in fact, even if it does hallow out totally in the West, you see it booming in other places. It may not be called Lutheran anymore. There's no, there's no, in a hundred years, there may, there may be no Lutheran churches. In 50 years, there may be no Lutheran churches. 
It may not be American. I don't know. What we always need more than anything else, of course, is the Spirit of God leading us and guiding us. Might we have open hearts and minds to listen to him, to follow him, to do the kind of ministry the world needs to respond to the issues in the world. In Luther's day, a portion of the word of God needed to be emphasized. We sometimes call that the canon within the canon. You know, so you have the canon is the Bible, but this part becomes the most important part. The text we heard this morning, for example. But in our own day, maybe a different portion of the word of God needs to be emphasized. So if and when your pastor says something a little unusual, as sometimes I've been accused of doing, that may be why. We can't keep just repeating and hoping to recapture the magic of 1517. But God doesn't need magic to overcome any and all obstacles to the building of his church. Let us simply be open to his leading. Amen.